Am I early? Yeah. Yeah, we're good. No, no, I mean, are you about to sing another song? Because you look like it. I gave you three extra Okay, we're good. We're awesome. Okay, great. I just didn't know. I just didn't know. Okay. Do you still have a sermon left in you? Man, okay. Oh, sorry. Okay. I sort of forgot the kids were going to be in here for this. So, this may become a, brief, a briefer version of itself. Let me start with, um, let me start with an apology. Now, I could have taken last week as a divine um, sign that I didn't need to apologize, but I, I thought that probably wasn't right. Um, so, those of you who know what I'm apologizing about know what I'm apologizing. And the rest of you, it's none of your business. Um, <laughs> If, if you were offended by what I did, you know exactly what I'm referring to. So this is, here, here's me explaining myself about that. I'm really sorry. I was wrong to do that. It was bad judgment. Please forgive me. I'll try to be more careful about that in the future. I'm especially sorry for the, uh, the team that called me because their worst fear was me doing something like that. And they told me before they hired me. So I especially apologize to Chris and company. So there it is. Okay, moving on. Um, so I thought it would be great right before Christmas to preach on the coming of the Soren and the Gerardine demoniac. Sound good? In case you're wondering the association here, Christmas reminds us of a baby. Babies take naps. Jesus took a nap in the storm passage. So that's the connection. Um, oh, before I go on, I, do, I want to introduce somebody um, who's a friend of mine. Um, probably the person who traveled the farthest to come to this, this um this gathering today is my friend Jasmine and, and Manohar. Why don't you guys stand for just a second? They came from Nagpur, India. And, um, uh, Manohar, Jasmine is a professor, but uh, Manohar is the principal of a theological college in Nagpur, India. He's hosted me as an adjunct professor three times at the Bible College there. Um, just at that school, they train about 200 church planning professors a year, and they have another 20 satellite campuses. So it's really fun to be able to partner with him. He's doing a PhD at Asbury right now, and so he's hanging out with us for a few days on his break. So I'm glad to have him. So do talk to him if you get a chance. Okay. In Mark's Gospel, there are three episodes that people use to show that Jesus was mean. Okay? There's three episodes that are really kind of puzzling and that people like to say, look right there, Jesus is mean. One of them is the cursing of the fig tree. One is this poor little fig tree. Jesus just curses it and it dies. Isn't he mean? Bertrand Russell said that in an essay called Why I'm Not a Christian. Um, there's another part where um, this Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus and wants her daughter to be healed. And Jesus goes, uh, it's not right to take food and give it to the dogs right? Because she's not Jewish. And so people are like, well, he just called her a dog. That's mean, right? And this passage where Jesus lets the demons go into a herd of 2,000 pigs that, uh, that belong to somebody, and they run down a hillside in the water and all die. Destruction of property. That's very mean, right? And we'll deal with the other two passages as we come to them, because we haven't come to them yet in Mark's gospel. But the, here's, the, here's the great irony of that. Um, the great irony of seeing the gathering demoniac story as a story of Jesus not caring about people and destroying their property and not really, and kind of being a jerk and a crank, is that that is the exact opposite of what the story's message actually is. Understood in its biblical context, understanding what Jesus is actually doing, the story of the coming of the storm and the Gerardine demoniac, which are one story, show that Jesus' terrifying power 
is matched only by his relentless compassion. This story is about, and I want you to listen for it when I read it to you, this story is about an exhausted Jesus sailing away from unbridled popularity through a tempest to a tomb-ridden hillside to stare down 6,000 demons to demand the life of one man already as dead as the graves he lives in. And then, just sending him back to his family and getting nothing out of it personally. That's what this story is about. So let's read it together. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat, and there were also boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped, and Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him? And they went across the lake to the region of the the Gerasenes, And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came up from the tombs to meet him. The man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained, hand and foot, and he tore the chains apart and broke the irons from his feet. And no one was strong enough to subdue him night and day among the tombs, and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. And a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs and the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man. They told them about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And Jesus did not let him, but he said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. And when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. The whole point of Mark's gospel, the whole point of the, I mean, just the whole book, is to tell us the identity of Jesus. That's the whole point. He tells us in the first verse, this is the good news about Jesus, who is the Son of God. Everything that follows points directly to that. 
And so Jesus has been doing a number of miracles and telling people who he really is, and it's, it's got this crowd coming, but there's also this religious teacher controversy, and they're already getting ready to kill him. And so for the next couple of chapters, Jesus is going to, from, from 435 to 66, he's going to withdraw from the publicity, and he's going to open up the window. He's going to narrow the number of people who see it, and he's going to amp up what they see. And it starts with crossing the lake. And I want, I want us to see basically three things out of these two stories. And that is first, I want you to see that people who really experience Jesus and really experience his power find it terrifying. If, if you have never, in mentally interacting what it means that you are a believer in, or a creation of, or part of the world belonging to the risen living King Jesus, and you have never, even for a moment, found that gripping and terrifying, then you probably haven't really seen it yet very deeply. Because everybody who really experiences Jesus' power is terrified. The second thing is, I want us to see why we need to see his power as terrifying. Why that's important for us. Why we will never be able to get our hearts around and really be encouraged by Jesus and really be transformed by Jesus unless we see his power as terrifying. And third, I want, I want us to see that his, his power is matched only by the intensity of his compassion. So first, I want to retell you the story about the storm. Let me, sorry, I just, I got to skip some stuff. <clears throat> that is, I want, I want us to see through the story that Jesus can only be encouraging and transforming as he, as encouraging and transforming as he is terrifying. So, okay, think about this, how this is rolling. So Jesus has just gone through a couple of weeks or a couple of months, Mark doesn't really tell us, of extremely intense ministry. He says the crowds were so intense that his disciples couldn't even eat. And the pressure from that was so intense that his own family came to take him away to have him committed because he felt like he was physically and mentally overwhelmed and too exhausted. Okay, that's the state Jesus is in. He's just spent a whole day teaching from a boat, speaking loud enough for a whole crowd to hear from a boat. And it says at the end of the day, right at the end, of the day, he doesn't go to shore, he doesn't have supper, he doesn't get a good rest. He says right then, he doesn't take that boat that's out from the shore to shore. He says, let's go that way into the rural area on the other side of the lake where the crowd could never possibly follow us because it's getting dark and they're going to cross like there's no way this crowd can follow him. Right? He's going to disappear into the night. And so his buddies get together, they get in this boat and they start crossing the sea. And so Jesus sleeps. It's nighttime. He's exhausted. He's already tried to get away for rest once and what happened? When he showed up where he was rest, there was a crowd of thousands of people that are waiting to be ministered to. And what does he do? He ministers to them because they need it. So, and so Jesus is, I mean, have you ever had one of these dead to the world sleeps? Like people have to shake you to wake you up. I mean, we kind of think like that Jesus is just, that his, the reason he is asleep during the storm is just because he's spiritual, right? It's sort of glowing Jesus. Jesus is glowing in the back of the boat. And the only reason he's asleep during this raging tempest is because he's spiritual. Spiritual Jesus. Okay, he's exhausted, right? And so, 
this squall comes up off the, off the uplands, off the back side there, of the, on, the, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and it just hammers this boat. Now listen, I don't know if you've been, ever been at sea when seas get rough in a small boat. Okay, it's scary. Because you're just trying to stay up and not fall over. And listen, I've been five, six foot seas in a 20 foot pro line with a 154 stroke Yamaha on it, and I was not particularly happy about the situation. Okay? These guys are in a narrower wooden boat with a sail on it. Okay? In the Sea of Galilee. Okay. At night. Okay? Now, I don't know if you've ever been at sea at night, but even when it's calm, it's a little freaky deaky. Okay? It's not, it's not like, oh, it's, this is real nice. I mean, if it's flat, calm, it's nice. But if it's not, and it's dark, it's weak, because you just never really know what's around you, because it's pitch black. So imagine these guys. They're on this boat. It is pitch black, okay? Pitch black. And they're in who knows what kind of seas, in a wooden boat. These guys are fishermen. They know what bad looks like. And now it says, it says that the boat was almost swamped. So there's water coming in faster than they can bail it out. And Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. Now, the, so they go back and they go, Jesus! <laughs> you know, we're about to drown, okay? You don't care? And so the word that's used in the passage is, Jesus was roused. Okay, now, that could mean one of two things. That could mean like all the little paintings. Jesus awoke, strode masculinely to the front of the boat, reached out his arms, and said in a loud yet poetic voice that was soothing and yet direct, Quiet! See, be still! And doves fly up from behind him. <laughs> and the sea was calm. But I don't think that's what it means, all right? Like, I don't know if you've ever tried to stand in a boat in four-foot seas that's big. You, if you are out in the Gulf of Mexico in a 50-foot boat and you're in four-foot seas, you're still holding on to something, okay? I mean, unless Jesus floated to the front of the boat, I just don't think that happens. I think it was more like Saturday morning with little kids. That's what I think happened, okay? I think Jesus was sleeping on a cushion, and they wake up, they go, Jesus, we're all gonna die! And he, and he gets up, and he's kind of like, ah. Oh. And he looks around, and the boat's like, I mean, the, and everybody's like, ah! Oh. And Jesus is like, oh, quiet! Be still! Oh! Go back to bed! <laughs> And then he just, and you know, I think, I think he, and then I think he turned this up and he's like, guys, do you still have no faith? Which could mean, right? You didn't think I could, or it could have been, why didn't you shut the thing up? I'm sleeping. <laughs> right? I, you know what I think happened? I think he looks at him and he says, guys, do you still, you still have no faith? Okay. I think he just laid back down, went back to sleep. That's what I think happened. And then they bailed out the boat and off they went, which they probably had to row now because it was flat calm. Now, all right, okay. So, so why make, why make light of that? Because I, so I really think that's probably how it went down. But see, I just think that makes it more realistic. I just think it, I just think when you think, because then the guy, because you're like, where did they have the conversation? I mean, these boats were like from here to here, and they're like this wide. So when did they have this conversation about who is this man? Who is this man? Who can? It's because Jesus is asleep again already. And they're bailing, and Jesus is already snoring again. And they're like, dude, 
who is this guy? Like, he wakes up, he tells the sea to shut up, and that, like, or hush, or be quiet. And, I mean, what the heck? This is crazy, right? And here, here's, here's why I think that that is helpful. Because that's how powerful Jesus is. He doesn't even have to get out of bed. Like, he, and he doesn't even have to, like, clean his eyes out. He just goes, oh, see a Galilee, would you stop? And that's it. Right? It's a very human action. Please be quiet. I'm trying to sleep. But it's a very uncommon human action that to yell at a sea. Like, that's not what you're supposed to really—most humans don't do that. And a very non-human-like response from the sea to just actually stop. Listen, I was on a trip to Israel. We were in the Sea of Galilee in this big boat, and it was really windy and uncomfortable. And we asked the sea to shut, to be quiet. We said, we did it. We'll be loud. We'll be like, Jesus, right? Be still. Everybody gave it a shot. There were like 40 of us. Didn't work for any of us. I'll just tell you right now. You know, and then the, the Israeli guy's like, tourists, you know? But that's how, I mean, that is Jesus. Jesus can half wake up, look at the sea, say, be quiet, and it's done. And listen, here's the, here's the irony of this, and this is true in both stories. When, when does Mark tell us that the people are terrified? It is after Jesus brings peace. Isn't that interesting? Jesus there's, there's all kinds of turmoil, all kinds of stuff happening. Every, afraid they're gonna die. Jesus brings total peace to the situation, right? And what's the response? Terror. The NIV uh, translates to terrified. It's, it literally is, and they feared a very great fear. Just to emphasize, this was not like a, ooh, this was like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. Now, I want to linger just for a second on this issue of Jesus, of being afraid of Jesus. Why is this so important? Because the point of this story is not, and okay, I don't want to make fun of the sermon because the sermon is true. The, the people who preach the sermon I'm about to make fun of, it's a true sermon. The whole like, Jesus is going to calm the storms of your life thing. That's, that's actually true. Jesus has the ability to come to storms of your life. That's true. But what most people mean by that when they preach that sermon is, in the problems of your life, Jesus has the ability to calm you and give you emotional peace. That's the absolute opposite of what happens in the story, right? What happens in the story is, Jesus actually takes care of the circumstance, and your emotional state is terrified. That's what, that's what this story actually says. It's the opposite of how we normally apply it. And here's why I think this is important. I think that it's important for us to recognize who we're dealing with. Because if we don't, you know what we're going to be? We're going to treat Jesus like a servant and a nursemaid. Because the thing that's going to really get our attention, you know what's going to really get our attention? It's not going to be Jesus. The thing that's going to really get our attention is the thing we're struggling with. Right? Our bad marriage, our wayward kid, our divorce, our layoff, our health problem, our emotional neediness, whatever it is for whichever one of us. We've all got issues. And if Jesus is not terrifying, guess what's going to occupy our attention and our imagination and our interest and our thinking and everything? Our problem is. So Jesus is going to be the secondary person we turn to because we want help with our issue. And so guess who doesn't get to be Lord? And guess what does get to be Lord in that kind of mentality? 
all of our problems, all of our issues, all the things we want Jesus to do for us and work on with us. And what is that? What does the Bible call that? The Bible calls that, right? Idolatry. That's what the Bible calls it, right? And so, if, 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 if Jesus' identity is not more gripping and terrifying than our own problem terrifies us, then our problems will be more God to us than Jesus is. Because Jesus is only worth to us what he can do in relation to our problems. Because they will occupy our attention. So if Jesus doesn't come in and make our blood run cold with his godness, he will never occupy our attention for very long. And that would be bad. Because what will take us through our problems is the great and terrifying Jesus. Lord over them all and in them all and through them all. And more interesting than them all and more important than them all. He is God. And so if he doesn't put the fear of God into us, he's not doing us any favors. He's not doing us any favors. One of the, let me give a quick example of this. Um, That is a ACL tendon from somebody in this congregation. Um, I I played soccer with her um, as a sub on one of these teams, and um, she's one of the teachers over at school. She uh, she, um, tore her ACL pretty badly. And um, my daughters have been praying for her upcoming surgery to uh, reconstruct her ACL. And um, uh, this teacher went in for surgery on her ACL and they, they opened her up and they put in the scope and they're like, oh, hmm. That's, um, that's a pretty, pretty much okay ACL. We're not gonna have to really do anything. So they just closed it up. That's it. There it is. After, that's what the scope found. A totally whole ACL tendon, right? It's a little weird. A little weird, right? And so everybody at school is like, oh, dude, God, God healed our teacher. That's so awesome, right? And I emailed her. I said, okay, is this legit? Like, do you really feel like you, you definitely had a torn ACL before and it's definitely healed now because I don't want to stay to church. If it's just, I'm just fabricating something exciting out of nothing. And she emailed me. She's like, no, I totally feel like God healed me. It's, it's weird, right? Now here's, but here's the thought process. We go, oh, that's so cool. God totally like healed her. That's awesome. Okay, but then does the penny drop? Whoa. All week we've been talking to a guy that can heal knees. Or calm storms. Or cast out armies of demons. Or raise the dead. Or create a new heavens and a new earth. (laughs) I mean... Has it dawned on us? Has it gotten in? Has the penny dropped that this is who we're speaking to? Because I'm just telling you, if that doesn't happen, everything else will have our attention but God, and we'll never, even though we believe in Jesus, become anything but idolaters. It's just basic human psychology, I think. So the second part, sorry, you shouldn't have seen that. The second part is um, the demonic and the pigs. And the point of this story is that Jesus is as loving as as his power is terrible. 
I mean, as big as Jesus' power is, and it's big, his compassion is its match. Um, when I looked at, at these passages to prepare sermon, the thing that moved me most was, what, was not the calming of the storm, but it was this passage. It was seeing the story of Jesus' love for this man. I mean, if you, if you look at it in Mark's gospel, it's an interlude. It's an interlude between two crowd events, right? So there's a crowd. He leaves the crowd. He does one thing. And he comes right back to the crowd and he sort of picks up where he leaves off. He just, he, he just decided he was going to go get this one guy. I mean, think about that. Right? Now, listen, sometimes to be encouraged and to feel compassion and to feel like we can be, we can be saved in this life, like really rescued from what troubles us in our families and our lives and our friends and the people we're with, is we, we need like, Sweet compassion, okay? And, and listen, I, I tend to be like Mr. Like, Err, but I mean, I love, I mean, I love a good bit of compassion just like the next guy, okay? Like, when I'm driving on a road trip, if my wife reaches out and touches the back of my neck and my hair and just twirls her finger in my hair, I can drive from here to Kansas and I won't even know a song has passed on the radio. Okay, I love love. Just like the next guy, Okay. That and masculinity are not mutually exclusive, so far as I can tell, all right? But sometimes, that's not what you need to experience the kind of compassion that you actually require. Sometimes, you, you do not need the nice little, ooh, aren't you? Oh, you're special, right? I mean, imagine the first Die Hard film, except instead of Bruce Willis as John McClane, they had Barney the Dinosaur, right? <laughs> it's a different movie. It's, it's a different movie, right? Or, um, or try this one. This is Sid the Sloth from Ice Age as John McClane. Right? That's funny. Come on. Yeah, you like that? So, um, Sid, I'm going to shoot you. So, anyway, you, you, you've got to have— sometimes compassion has to come with some power, and that's what happens in this story. Jesus shows up, he gets out of the boat, he walks up to this guy, and the guy comes, and, and it's not really clear whether this guy's coming at him or not. Because it says he sees Jesus from on the hillside, and he comes running at Jesus, and it's hard to know if it's guy or demon leading the charge there. Right? And he goes, whoa, buddy, come on out. Right? Now, there's a lot of speculation in the biblical scholarship over the years over why Jesus says, what is your name? And a, real, a lot of real skeptical scholars say, well, it was believed in ancient Near East shamanism that if you knew the name of a spirit, you had power over it. Which I have always had trouble with. Like, how dumb is the spirit? Okay, tell me your name. <laughs> Not going to do anything with it. Just want to know. <laughs> right? No. He asks the, the demon its name so that his disciples know what they're dealing with. He wants them to know that this is not just another exorcism. Because everybody knows that the basic Roman legion is about 5,600 troops. Basic Roman legion. And so that when this demon goes, my name's Legion, for we're many. He's, he's not dealing with a demon. He's dealing with an army of demons. 
And he wants his disciples to know that. And then he says, just like he would cast out one demon, out. Now, the, the irony here, if you, if you read these, two, these couple of verses, is it says, when Jesus saw him from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. Now, think about it. The man is possessed by an army of demons, thousands. And what is his response to Jesus? He falls on his knees in front of him, right? And then Jesus says, and then he says, swear to God you won't torture me, right? When was the last time you saw a hillside full of 56,000 troops and one dude? And the, le- the leader of the legion comes out and goes, dude, just don't hurt us, please! Like, that's not how that normally goes down, right? But that's what's happening here. And then he says, my name is Legion, for we're many. And then he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Right? It's a little ironic. And then he sends them to the pigs. They run down, and they all die, right? And then there's a lot of, been a lot of speculation about why that, that is. Right? Why did Jesus let the pig— Why didn't he just go, get out of here? Right? Go, go into the fish. Right? And um, there's, um, there's a lot of conjectures about this. Some people believe that it's predominantly Jews. Jews are forbidden to keep pigs in the, in the Torah. And so this could be some kind of judgment of their idolatry, material idolatry, instead of following the law. Some people have said that um, it was a—I okay, don't really—I don't think this has any weight to it. That people, they cared more about the herd of pigs and about this hurting man, that it's this socioeconomic justice issue, which I just think is totally reading modern interest back into this text. Third is— um, that the pigs in this man's possession are somehow related, and there's a backstory that we don't know, which is possible, because surely Mark shortened the story after Peter told it. Um, some say it's a, a spiritual and moral test for the village. Would the people of the Gadarene value Jesus' salvation to this man or their stuff more? It was an idolatry test for whether or not Jesus should stay and do ministry. I mean, yeah, who knows, right? Um, uh, one commentator named William Lane says it demonstrates the demon's intentions with the man that the, the demon's goal was to kill him. And this demonstrates that because they kill everything. They destroy everything. And you need to know crystal clear that every de- demon and devil that exists that seeks to tempt you seeks to destroy you. They're not playing nice. There are devils that are seeking to tempt and destroy ch- our children. And that is beyond the pale of decency. But that is their intent purpose. And Jesus demonstrates the reality of that by every single one of them killing these animals immediately. I say a whole lot more about this. You know what I think it is? I think it's the last one. I think it is that he wanted to show the disciples and everybody watching that this whole idea that there were a lot of demons was not some kind of word game. Right? There are 2,000 pigs. They're all dead. So whatever number of actual demons there were, it was more than 2,000. This was a true, no kidding, army. And then here's the, here's the result, which I think is kind of interesting, because most people, I think, infer that the reason the people were terrified is that they were terrified for their economic well-being. Well, he killed all the pigs, and what, the cows next? We gotta get this guy out of here! Right? But this is what it actually says. It says, When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. You see, when Mark tells the story, he does not connect the destruction of the pigs with the fear of these people. He connects the destruction of the pigs with the salvation of the man. 
Whatever their fear of this demon-possessed man was before he was, before he was liberated is nothing compared to their fear of seeing him saved. <laughs> to know that everything that they could do, everything that they tried, every chain, every man, every soldier, every security guard, whatever they could do to contain this man, totally failed. He just grew stronger. That no chain, even on all four extremities, could possibly hold him in. None of that could control him. And this man comes along, and now he's dressed and talking and normal and sane. And they were terrified. Now think about that. That's the second time in about 30 verses that Jesus brings salvation and peace. And what is the response of the humans? Fear. But what I think is even more important than that is, is the, the greater context of this story. Jesus has come for to no gain to himself for this man and not to make a trophy out of him as another disciple. He's not, this guy doesn't become the 13th disciple. He doesn't follow him like Mary Magdalene who he casts demons out of. That's not what happens. He saves this guy just to send him home to his family. And he doesn't say, go and evangelize the 10 cities of the capitalists. He just goes, just go home and tell your family what God has done for you and had mercy. The guy just decides he's going to evangelize a region because he's joyful. But Jesus asks nothing of him. He leaves the crowd. He goes across a deadly sea. He steps upstairs in the face of a legion of demons. He liberates the guy. And then he just sends him home. He says, go, go home to your wife and kids. And tell him that, that God has had mercy on you. And, he, and then he, the people start leaving. He goes, okay. He gets back in the boat. He goes right back across. It's, he came for that one man. <clears throat> who had no hope, no possibility of salvation. Who knows what kids were growing up without, with a father, what wife was trying to hold things together at home. I mean, apparently he had a family. And so you may listen to this and you may say, Nick, honestly, a sermon on the gathering demoniac right before Christmas? Seriously? But Christmas time is a time of year where we celebrate the divine paradox of baby Jesus come to save humanity. Okay, and, and listen, here's what I think. I think for a lot of us, it's hard for that to just really come home to roost every single year. And frankly, um, you may not be a baby person. Okay, listen, I'm not a baby person. Um, a lot of people, when they think of babies, they go, baby Jesus. Oh, I love babies. And like they're sen they have this sentimental like, oh, listen, when you say baby, this is what I think of, okay? I'll just tell you right now. <laughs> it's not pretty. That's not true. I'm just, that's only half true, kids. Um, but I like children, just not babies, okay? So don't feel like I don't like you. Um, but you know, there's some, some people just have a hard time sentimentally with Christmas because they just have a hard time respecting a baby savior, okay? That's just how, that's where we're living. Some people are living psychologically. And so here's what I, here's what I want to do for, for, for those of you who are like me, who aren't baby people and aren't real sentimental. I just wanted to lay before you the ferocious, terrifying man, Jesus Christ, that grew up from that baby, that for the salvation of one individual man would cross a tempest, step onto a hillside full of graves, pull a man who is as good as in one of them, occupied by an army of demons, cast them out for his salvation, and then send him home to his family, taking nothing for himself from it, but simply to give for the salvation of this man when he was exhausted himself. And that is the message of Christmas. 
That is what we have come here to celebrate. That you and I are that Gerardine demoniac. Jesus had better things to do than to save you and me. He did not have some kind of psychological neediness that he wanted us fawning all over him. Jesus had from eternity past the fellowship of the Father and the Holy Spirit who are infinitely interesting and infinitely loving and infinitely important and infinitely intelligent and infinitely creative. They would have been completely happy for eternity without us. And they could well have left us to die in a demon-possessed, tempest-filled, sinful world. And he, he could have passed over any one of us individually. He could, have, and he, could have brought, he could have gotten rid of us and made some other people for himself if he felt like it. But he was the sort of being that did this kind of thing. That he came as a baby so that he could grow up into this man who could do these kinds of things and who could embrace nails and crosses and bleed to death and destroy the grave and to come alive and to give us Easter as the present of Christmas and to make salvation for everyone so that we could sit here dressed and in our right minds and go out with joy and not just tell our family how much Jesus had done for us, but our whole city. Let's pray and eat some pancakes. <laughs> Father, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for this gift. Thank you for this scripture. I pray, Father, that you would drive home and into us what you'd have us take from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.